This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Canadian athletes are getting ready for the Olympic Games in China, and they're going to need support. Katrina LeMay-Done, former Olympic speed skater and the chef de mission for Team Canada at 22, uh, 2022 Beijing Olympics, joins the Shift. She talks about her job at these games, Olympic culture, her past, and how to help athletes learn and succeed and grow at the games they play. With the holidays around the corner, many Canadians are looking to experiment with cannabis. We had Opie Sidhu, a cannabis expert sharing everything we need to know before we try. Plus, are you okay with drive throughs and more? This is the Shift Podcast. It's time for Are You Okay? I would like to say that last night when Ryan took the night off to be with his family, we had a uh, low level of typos on Are You Okay? But turned out we didn't. Um... We also had a you TV station on. Have we still had our typos? I had to be adamant oh. that I didn't write oh. them. Because I did. We also had a TV station piece that was by a station that was KUTI. I, I still think that was the best part of the week this week. <laughs> See, your brain goes to a different place than mine. I thought it was cutie. Yeah, and cutie I was news. like, oh, it it, it burns when one. you watch it. You know. Oh well. Okay, are you okay with drive-throughs? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's like this anticipation where you commit. It's time to get some fast food, and you wait, and you get it, and then your car smells like fast food for like the ten minute drive home. Oh, and when I say your car, I mean people whose car I'm in because I don't have a car, but it's <laughs> it's like it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, you're you're not a car owner, so you haven't experienced the. Um... How many French fries do you find under your seat when you vacuum? Oh yeah. Game. Yeah. No, I haven't. No. Yeah, it's quite a few. I'm lines. pretty sure that I have like a I dropped like half a bun under my dad's rental car seat from A and W the other week. I should probably check for that. Mm. That's a rental. It's a rental. It's a rental. Yeah. Uh, drive-throughs to me. I mean, weren't, I think they initially came about to have a quicker, more efficient experience. But to me now, mm-hmm. it seems as if it takes longer in the drive-thru because nobody wants to get out of their car and the line just doesn't move. I will openly say that the Coop, or the McDonald's and Cooper's in Airdrie, which is the closest one to where I live, I have spent 14 minutes in the drive-thru waiting for food. And when I called, the guy said, sorry for the dissatisfactory service. I was like, that's it? He was like, yep, have a nice day. So I was like, okay. And the next time I went there, it was 12 minutes. So it's not fast. They up their game. Some of the stores are fast. Some of them are not fast. And um, some of them are dreadful. And so I'm going to be uh, the naysayer here and say, I mean, drive-thrus when you're on a road trip on your way out of town and you grab your like sausage and egg McMuffin and your coffee and your orange juice and you're on your way out of town, that's a lovely you know, kind of get it done. It's better though when you go inside and get it anyway. You get your takeout bag, you get back in the car, you go on your road trip. Just saying, this is me. This is just my heart. I'm going to be honest with mm-hmm. you. There's, if you want to look at what is the core of what is wrong with our society in North America today, wow. it is the drive-through. Drive- really, the drive-through. Yeah. Okay, we went there. Jam. Wow. I wasn't really. This is like mayo all over again. We open up a can of worms here. Yeah, we go deep. You do raise a very fair point about it. But you you know the place to get the fastest food is mall food courts. I went to the A&W at Chinook. I ordered a teen burger, and I had it in 42 seconds. I literally looked at the clock. I ordered it at 1 o'clock, and it wasn't even 101 before I got my burger. Yeah, it was cooked. A, all Chinook way? is a mall in Calgary. For those who don't know, what was that right? Yes. I said it was cooked all the way through, like forty-two <laughs> seconds. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. That, in fact, that's the. I'm not sure where the. There's like a half bun that was missing, and I'm pretty sure it fell in my dad's car, but it was there. Oh, so wow. Yeah. Um, no, I just think that when we, it's a good example of us as humans where we need to just slow down, man. But if you need food in a flash, you can always rely on a drive-through to get food, maybe not in a flash. A 15-year-old employee at McDonald's went above and beyond the call of duty this week when she leaped out of the drive-through window to save someone's life. This is more from KARE News. 
15-year-old Sydney Rayleigh from Edina has worked at McDonald's since summer, taking on a number of roles. Sometimes I'll actually be taking people's orders, sometimes I'm mixing drinks, sometimes I'm handing food out the window. Sometimes she's saving lives. I noticed that she was coughing profusely. I could tell, like, oh crap, she's choking. Then the fast food worker thought fast. I jumped out the window of the drive-thru and I got her out of the car, told her daughter to call 911. She called in a bystander to help and together they successfully performed the Heimlich maneuver. It's training Sydney had four years ago, but one she was able to expertly recall. She remembered all of the training. I always tell her she has a gift because she's autistic and she like can remember anything, do anything. It's crazy. Impressing her parents. We're really proud of her. And the local police. And we could use more of her in this world. Who rewarded her for a good deed done. They gave me a hundred dollars. It's insane. But better than the monetary reward is what Sydney learned about herself. Feel as though like huh, I'm actually capable of like contributing to society and actually like capable of making a difference that's an amazing story to hear how powerful she sounds in her confidence level now right like i i can do this and that's amazing what a fantastic story um and to you know i that's amazing because she literally jumped out of the drive-through window and i would be stuck in the drive-through window so this is also amazing (laughs) (laughs) Like, I tried to save the guy's life, but I got stuck in the window. Can someone help me now? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Are you okay? Are you okay with Lay's chips? Yes. Um, They're they're okay. The old Dutch are way better. Infinitely better. Canadian and way better. But I can't eat just one. Yeah, that's the thing with the Lay's, Uh right? Um, Is the, the Lay's plain, the classic... That's tough to top, man. Old Dutch, absolutely, hands down. The flavors, the crunchy, the thickness of the mm-hmm. chip, all that. But yeah. there's something about that razor-thin, tiny little air wafer that is Lay's with the amount of salt they put on it. It's pretty fantastic, just saying. It's it's Well, it's not bad. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's pretty du- good. Old Dutch is, I mean, it's actually like a meal. Like, there's actually potato there like yeah <laughs> we're not quite used to that in today's world all right um say what you will about lays but you can only bet you can bet you can only have one but you can't but you can only have oh mark may what did you say they got jimmy fallon to sing and parade around with all of their products this is a good ad there'll be smart food for munching some ruffles for crunching and snowball fights out in the snow <laughs> crying <laughs> Run. <laughs> Family portraits are cheesy with Cheetos. It's easy. White shirts were a bad idea, though. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Grab the queso and salsa. Don't double dip, you monster! <laughs> Pass the Tostitos here. Every I, I... year. Mm-hmm. Is is almost three minutes long. Oh wow! Expensive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, they make bizarre flavors. They have some competitions and stuff. They did poutine and big potato, and the list goes on and on. Now, but Lay's is getting into another aspect of the potato market. Vodka. What? No. Oh, vodka. This oh. sounds appetizing to me. Oh. Yes. Oh. Created in partnership with Portland, Oregon's East Side Distilling, Lay's Vodka is made with a blend of Portland potato vodka and vodka distilled from Lay's proprietary potatoes. Lay's has kept it simple, foregoing the temptation to create a barbecue or sour cream and onion vodka. (laughs) Instead of opting for a straight 80 proof vodka with crisp, clean finish, and it's already sold out. You might remember this story that we talked about on the shift, too, that Arby's also made their own special vodka. Mm -hmm. Ryan found a recipe that uses it, and, well, here. If you like your Bloody Mary spicy, the curly fry vodka is the way to go. 
First, we're gonna rim our glass with a little bit of my signature Tennessee hot seasoning, and then a couple ounces of the Arby's Curly Fry Vodka. Few more shakes of that Tennessee hot, kosher salt, lemon juice and lime juice, and some pickle juice. Couple drops of your favorite hot sauce, a little bit of clam juice mix, and some fresh tomato juice. Worcestershire sauce, and then we're gonna use some Arby's sauce. And then it's time to garnish. Arby's jalapeno bites, curly fries, a lemon wedge, and we'll finish it off with a dill pickle spear. Where I can go fast. And that's Arby's curly fry Bloody Mary. Cheers. Is there any vodka in that? Uh, well, there's. It, it basically just sounds like Arby's blended. I just it's not, oh, no. It sounds Mary like a so stew disgusting. more than anything else. Um, <laughs> it does. <laughs> um, although uh, that being said, it, the only thing missing really is giblet water or brine at this point of the shift. Brine. <laughs> oh god. Mmm, <laughs> brine. Mm. All right, it's Are You Okay here on the shift? Ryan O'Donnell right there. Brennan Kelly's there. I'm Shane Hewitt. This uh, next story, let's just take it out of context with this whole clip. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? I don't want to know what you got to do. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. What do we do? We swim, swim. Dory, no singing. I love to swim. Dory. When you want to swim, you. See, I'm going to get stuck now with that song. Now it's in my head. Sorry. I'm not a big Ellen fan, but Ellen as Dory was magic. Yeah, no, perfect. Perfect casting. Are you okay? Are you okay with swimming, swimming, swimming? Love swimming. I almost became a lifeguard. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love swimming ever since I was a kid. There's like, I've already planned my bachelor party when I do get married. It's literally just, I want to spend an entire weekend at the West Ed water park. That's all I want to do. Just swim and go on the water slides. Love it. It's not quite the same as most other people's bachelor party dreams, but yeah. okay. What did you expect from me? <laughs> well, it's not It's not you that's the concern for me. If you want to go to the water park, this is where bachelor parties go wrong. If you want to go to the water park for it, Normal friends, I'm not saying good friends, normal friends will just duct tape you to a dolly, roll you into the wave pool with you up to the neck with water. They'll go have fun, have some Mai Tais and go on the slides, go to a bar and come back and get you later when you've been sitting in the water duct taped to a dolly for four hours. That's more of a normal stag. Just saying. Sounds great. When I um, when I was DJing all the time at the Aurora Nightclub at Bayfire, I'll never forget it. Um, there was guys and they wheeled their, their stag buddy on that. He was so smashed. They had him on a dolly and they wheeled him into the dance floor somewhere around probably 1245, one o'clock. And, um, when the night ended, he was just the only one on the dance floor. All of his buddies forgot and left him there. <laughs> he was all by himself. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> he was swimming in sadness that night. Holy. He did not look like he was in very good shape. Okay. Are you okay uh, with uh, swimming? This is where we got to, I think. Yeah. Even if you're good at swimming, it can be an exhausting experience. Absolutely. Treading water. <laughs> Ooh, you just picture this. You can survive a helicopter crash in the ocean. And then, hmm, you survive a helicopter crash in the ocean. And then you need to swim for 12 hours just to stay alive. And that's exactly what a 52-year-old government minister in Madagascar did. You know, normal day at work. Here's more from WION News. The incident took place after the helicopter was flying its passengers to inspect the site of a shipwreck that took place off the northeastern coast of Madagascar. The Malagasy minister, Sergei Gel, who is the country's secretary of state for police, was part of a team that was searching the northeastern coast of the country after a cargo ship that was carrying 130 passengers suddenly sank. That resulted in at least 39 people losing their lives. Meanwhile, Sergei is said to be one of the two survivors to have managed to swim for 12 hours to the shore after the helicopter's crash. As of now, a search operation is underway to find the other two passengers. The two missing passengers were also members of Madagascar's police force. However, the cause of the crash is still not known. In a video that was shared on social media, the 57-year-old minister appears lying exhausted and wearing his camouflage uniform. Miguel said that his time to die has not come. 
That's wow. badass. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. 12 hours. Where's Skip Rico and Kowalski when you need them? At 52. Holy. Hey, no. It's not that old. Yeah. Easy. Slow Easy. your roll. Easy. In the ocean? 52? I couldn't even do that at 25. Yeah, we're more <laughs> buoyant when we get older. Mm, good point. Mm. All right. Uh, police, the police chief, I'm not going to even try to uh, get his name right because I don't want to do on, it a disservice. Do it. Oh, Zafasam Batra. Zafasam Batra? Yeah. Raveovi. Raveovi? Zafasam Batra? Raveovi? You did that to me on purpose. Told news agency AFP that Mr. Gell had used one of the helicopter seats as a flotation device. See, he's more buoyant. And he always had a great stamina in sport. He's kept his rhythm as minister. So just like a 30-year-old, he has nerves of steel. Longest anyone has ever swam, 42 and a half hours. In October 2014, an Australian swimmer, Chloe McCardle, swam 78 miles in 42 and a half hours. I'm guessing Chloe had more training other than sitting in a helicopter. Yeah. I also think she got stung by a jellyfish 15 times. Something like that. On that journey. And was like, I'm going to keep going. (laughs) Yeah. This is fun. Yay. Goal setting stuff. This is the Shift Podcast. The Olympics are only a few weeks away. Of course, the big question is, is it going to be happening? It's going to be happening. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And there are so many athletes that have worked so incredibly hard to get there. I'm lucky enough to actually uh, know and call a friend an athlete that not only worked to get there once and worked to get there twice, and now she's working to get there to support other athletes, um, which is really cool. Katrina LeMaydon is here hanging out on the shift. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So you are the chef de mission for the Olympics coming up, and uh, you must be excited. I am excited. Uh, and you said that very well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. You know what? It, these will actually be my 11th games. Uh, four as athlete, five as media, and this will be my second as mission team. It's wild. And yes, they're going to happen. Uh, countdown is on. And I am excited. A little apprehensive. Uh, just leaving for a month makes my kids nervous. Uh, but I'm excited. This has sort of been a dream of mine to be chef and come full circle since my first games for those who don't understand the chef de mission uh what really is your job well the chef is uh every country actually has a chef de mission canada is one of the very few countries that puts uh, an athlete in that position other countries put an administrator but it's a it's a leader it's a spokesperson um cheerleader mentor bit of everything uh leading up it's been a lot of meetings um you know talking to the athletes giving updates at games time hopefully you know there aren't any issues that we have to deal with but um really you sort of if there's any controversy you put on the armor and you're sort of take that spot so the athletes don't take that. You know, my role at games time is step aside. The focus is on the athletes. So mm-hmm. it's a volunteer position, but it's just something that I find, you know, I've had the experience. I've had all the good and the bad experiences as an athlete, as media, I get what it takes. And so I just wanted to help athletes be their very best and have the very best Olympic experience. And so that's why I wanted to to go forward as chef, um, you know, especially since 2018, when I was on mission team, that was really my goal. It's, it looks a little different right now because of COVID and because of the pandemic, but um, you know, it's, we'll be going, we'll be in the same roles and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's uh, it is exciting. And I do know that um, there, not only do you go there and you get to be a mentor and, and do all these things, um, there's a real special treat to this title of Chef de Mission for you. Like this was, this is funny to me. Can I, can we talk about your tattoo? Is that too <laughs> yes. personal? Okay. No. Um, okay. <laughs> whatever I, whatever I post isn't that personal. Okay, good. Um, well, you know, some people they're like, oh, yeah, it's weird. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you, um, you went to the game, like the long list of medals, golds and speed skating, all those things, right? Like, 
Uh-huh. It's amazing, the long list, what you accomplished. Most athletes, when they go to the Olympics, they will get a tattoo of the Olympic rings typically when they go. You waited specifically to not do it as an athlete until you had this title. So why is it so special to you? And um, and now that you now you're all set, you got you you're tat you're tatted up, ready to go. Um, so why was it so special? Yeah, you know it is funny. And even uh, one of my daughter's teammates on her U19 ringette team, she had said to my daughter, she said, "Oh, you know, I was looking for your mom's tattoo though when we were in Saskatoon a few weeks ago." And she goes, "I couldn't find it." And then I saw her post; she just got it. I'm so surprised. And yeah, tons of people assumed that. As soon as I was done for Olympics or retired that I would get the rings tattoo. And I don't know, I've made this deal with myself that my results wouldn't define me, mm. wouldn't define my Olympic experience. And then I had five games as media and, you know, every games is different. Every games has a different spirit. And then when I went in 2018 on mission team as lead athlete mentor, which kind of took the place of what used to be assistant chef de mission, I really knew that I wanted to be chef and I had confirmed in my own mind that if I ever had that opportunity, that's when I would get the rings because to me, it's the power of the games. It's not just about performance. It's not just about, um, you know, being there for a sport opportunity. It's being there and living the games in every opportunity. And again, that's just for me, but the fact that, you know, I've been able to be an example to athletes of, of how how to fail, because I have failed at the Olympics, how to succeed and how to still go beyond that and not have my results define me, but really have the fact that I want to give back. To me, that's what I want to define me. And so the fact that I waited then to get the rings for this reason was just that it came full circle, that to me, it's the importance of mentoring and the importance of giving back and, and volunteering. And so, yeah, I, it was actually 60 days out of the games that I got it. And I, I love it and I'm proud of it. And, uh, you know, it, it's pretty like it, it's it's visual. It's on the outside of my forearm because I want to portray what the games mean and the value of, you know, the power of of the games and the rings and the flame. And so, you know, to me, it's about the world coming together in peace. It's about conversations that start because of the games. And, that, and that's what that's what I love. Do athletes uh, manage to keep the politics at bay? I mean, do you see that with athletes today? The games over the last, you know, few, the economics of it, the politics around it, especially recently, you know, that has sort of bubbled up. And I understand the media, you know, shares that part of it. Um for me, I always feel inspired when they talk about, I love the conversation. I'm not asking you to answer about this, but I just want to share why I'm asking the question. Um, I love when they talk about these recurring game event cities. I love the notion that there maybe could be four or five basic event cities. Uh, and if another city wanted to join, they would have to build the infrastructure and do the thing. It's very expensive. And if the future of the Olympics um, has some home bases, if you will, that's exciting to me because that allows the space for the economics problems to go away and the athletes to just be a part of it. Do you find the athletes are able to just have that love for the games and shut out the noise of all the other things that shouldn't matter to them? They do and they don't. I mean, you know, social media has been a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, they're bombarded all the time, but they're also able to tell their story. They're also able to talk about their story and talk about things that are important to them. So, you know, there are rules within the International Olympic Committee that you cannot talk the political side and things on the field of play because those must be kept neutral. So those are within the, the rules. But, you know, people don't understand that Canada has a very good and a very strong athletes commission. There's also an international Olympic athletes commission. So the Canadian, the COC's athletes commission has continued to carry the voice of athletes within the world of the Olympic games. And so, you know, there are, there are not even exceptions. There are places where athletes can safely talk about their opinions within the Olympic village, within media, within certain places. But again, it has to be safe, safe for all athletes. So, you know, athletes understand what's going on. But again, what these games, 
not just these games, what all games do, and again, let's talk Olympics and Paralympics, is it brings attention to things in the world. So, you know, there was controversy before Sochi on the LGBTQ plus side. And what happened from that is Canada actually created a whole bunch of inclusive programs. So when there are conversations, when there is controversy, what happens is solutions and, and, and you know, things are talked about and programs and, and different things emerge from that. So, yes, there's controversy going into Beijing, but the conversation is being had because of that. Mm-hmm. And so the athletes know that when it comes to that stuff, it's noise around them. They've had to block out noise for years. They have to block out pressure. They have to block out media, all of that stuff. Their role and their job is to go and compete and perform. And there are hundreds of people on the mission team who are there to help deal with all of that outside noise so that they can concentrate. And, you know, whatever somebody's opinion is of the Olympics, uh, people are engaged when they happen. Oh, people they do. watch and they oh. cheer. And yeah, so I, I hope, you know, the big message for me is those 228 athletes, they represent every single Canadian. They don't do it for a paycheck. They don't do it because somebody has said, you know, you must do this. They choose to go and they choose to represent Canada Regardless of the result, we should be celebrating them because they are representing our country and they're representing our values that we are fortunate to have representing the Maple Leaf and living in this country. It's beautiful and very well said. Thank you. Um, the Olympic flame itself is such a beautiful story. Um, you know, the, the Olympic flame is only lit by the sun and, and it's carried and transferred around. Most people don't understand that. You know, the backup, la- the lanterns, the backup lanterns, the don't let it burn out lanterns, you know, the backup to the backup lanterns that are in storage somewhere. You know, um, it's, uh, I'm exaggerating, of course, but, you know, it, it's such a magical journey and such an incredible uh, journey. For you, though, you did it pre-internet. And in hindsight, when you look back at that, do you feel that uh, you were, you're lucky to be able to be an athlete back then or... Um, you know, it's, it's been about 20 years, I guess. Um, and it's, I guess hindsight's always 2020 vision, I suppose. Um, good I'm not that old. We did have internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I should, you're right. I should rephrase that back before the social media took over. Exactly. We did have, we Thank did you. have the, internet we also had color television. We did. Yes. And electricity. <laughs> yes. <true>. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, there's good and bad to, I'll, I'll say my era. And you know, it's funny because in Beijing, it will be 20 years since my uh, 2002 victory in Salt Lake City. Um, there was, it was different. So I was reminded leading up to my race, you know, don't look at the internet, which existed. Don't look at the newspaper. Don't look at all that because that's added pressure. Um, the same goes for the athletes because They don't need to today see what people are saying or not saying on social media, but they're super engaged in that. But it's also an opportunity for them to tell their story. So there's good and bad to both. It's how we control it. And I think, you know, the thing is, is whether it's athletes, business, whatever, it's what gives you energy and and everybody needs to figure that one out. So Mm -hmm. if for me, the fueling is not caring what other people are saying then it's how do I disengage from that? If the fueling is, oh, I want to do this and I want to know what people are saying, good and bad, then they have to know that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's different for sure now, but again, it's an opportunity to really embrace who those athletes are. Loving it and learning to loving it. I'm going to, Katrina LeMaydon is a fantastic public speaker, and I invite everybody, uh, if you're ever looking for someone to talk about successes and failures and motivation and all those things, yeah, I'll, I'll give you this. I'll give the sales pitch here. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. But you could, you could, like, seriously, you need to hear this conversation from Katrina. Um, but I, you have also shared with me in our personal conversations that, you know, the difference between being very good at something, learning to love something, and having a love affair of the things you absolutely love to do. When 
the way that at least my takeaway from our conversations is when you can distinguish, because we often collapse all those together and we, do you love it? Oh, of course I love it. I won, right? But really, do you love it? But when you can actually take the time and distinguish between the things you're very good at, the things that you learn to love, and then your true love affairs, when you can distinguish those, you become very powerful in what you create in your life, whether that's sport or work or family or whatever. Um, Can you share a little bit of that piece of yourself? Because I know that that's a big part of your success was being able to create that. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I think that's a little bit of why I didn't get the rings right after I retired, because... I, I I love the Olympics and I love the games and I love the power of them. Um, I didn't love the competition of the games. I never thrived on it. And when people say, you know, say to me, well, you won gold medals, but if you actually look, those were never my best races. They were good enough because I expected perfection for myself at a Saturday morning training race or an Olympic games. So I I am a perfectionist, very hard way to be because it's, you realize you're never perfect. You never have the perfect race. Nothing is perfect. And so you must come to terms with that. But I think it's, you know, again, what you're passionate about, what gives you energy. Um, And and it can, it can change and it can evolve. Um, I love the training. I loved what I did. I loved the games, but again, I didn't thrive on that stress. I managed, I managed it and I learned to cope. And I think I, I've, it's taken me a long, long time to understand how much pressure that was. Um, I wouldn't wish that or how I felt on (laughs) my worst enemy, but um, you know, I think it's where I'm at right now is, is loving that my entire life can revolve around sport and people at various levels, the pressure of my performance. I mean, I obviously still expect stuff for myself, work side, family side, uh, volunteer side. But I think because that pressure isn't as intense, I maybe have more love for it because I can cope a little better. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm the type of person that I, I, I'm okay if people fail. But the work ethic is what I love of people and I expect of people and I expect it of myself. But I think, you know, I've come to understand more of who I am and what I love. And but, you know, I'm (laughs) I'm uh, getting older. So I don't know. I guess that's that's what happens when you just kind of start to figure yourself out. Yeah, well, we all grow up a little bit eventually. Some of us (laughs) like me later than others. Um, But uh, it it is a magical thing, and it is great to hear that message. I think it's so incredibly important for us to do that. Katrina Lemaydon, chef de mission for the Olympics coming up in Beijing. Uh, Now, you are based in Calgary, so let's touch with your work with Sport Calgary. uh, For all of our Southern Alberta listeners, let's quickly just touch about Chinook Blast is a really cool event that's going, uh, that was last year. I think it was last year, first Mm -hmm. one? Yeah, Yeah, first one. And, um, you know, with, with things changing quickly and being outside being an option for most people to feel safer and go through their days, um, there's some cool stuff happening still this year. Yeah. So um, I've been with Sport Calgary for a number of years. Um, we're a nonprofit. Uh, we're a civic partner with the city. Um, you know, what we do is we connect people in the community and sports and facilities. And uh, what we do with that, what we're going to do with Chinook Blast is, uh, again, second time this is going to happen. Again, it's during pandemic, but what we're going to do this year is have a sport festival. And so we're going to actually do sport demonstrations down at Olympic Plaza. We're going to be able to showcase many of the sports and clubs that exist in our community, sports that people perhaps haven't even heard of, um, you know, have an opportunity to showcase uh, some of the sports and their adaptable programs, because a lot of the programs, you know, might really work well with certain families, but then they need an adaptable uh, program. And a lot of this, a lot of sports and clubs have been able to do that. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I love talking about this. It's going to be the first weekend of February, which is going to coordinate just after the Olympics have actually started. Um, so unfortunately I'm not going to be there cause I'll be in Beijing. So <laughs> <laughs> my team of sort Calgary, really small team, they're going to be um, taking that on, but it's going to be great. And so, you know, I just, again, pandemic, who knows what's going to be happening at that point, what the restrictions will be, but it is an outside event 
come down to Olympic Plaza, you know, celebrate sport. And again, sport is for everybody. Doesn't mean you have to be at the highest level, but it's about being active. And, um, you know, it's a way we're going to get healthier uh, physically, socially, and mentally. So I'm pretty excited about this uh, sport festival in coordination with Schnick Blast. Yeah. Um, I've, just for everyone who's listening, Katrina like does the strangest things, like just out of the blue, be like, I'm going to go running for an hour. Like you have to understand, like <laughs> it is the weirdest of all the things. Um, oh yeah, thanks. And not only, <laughs> well, no, but you're so fit. I mean, it's amazing how, how hard you work uh, to maintain your health. And I think it's a good example for people too. Uh, most importantly, I think that before we wrap up here, most people don't know about Katrina LeMay Doan. Uh, is the arena attendant career she has taken on. <laughs> and um, how is the backyard the, uh, ODR for you? Is it uh, up and running and smooth? It finally smooth. is up. It's finally up and running. You know what? It was such a warm beginning to the winter. Yeah. And then all of a sudden when the cold hit, I was like, yes, let's get flooding. So I have full boards. Uh, my son and I went out the other day. I mean, he's now 5'11". He's 14. Uh, well, I don't have to tell you that. Your son is yeah, six five. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so it was, you know, it's super fun. And uh, that's kind of what we always do. I'm um, a Christmas birthday, unfortunately. So that's what we always do is we play a little bit of shinny. My kids think it's really funny to dangle the puck around me because I play old lady hockey and old lady ringette, but um, <laughs> they can both skate circles around me now. So, yeah, Which is ironic from a, for a speed, Olympic gold medal speed <laughs> skater, know. right? It's so frustrating, but now at least they're at the age that maybe I do swear at them once in a while and <laughs> maybe they swear back. So, um, you know what? It's, uh, it's up and running. It's, uh, it's great. Um, yeah. It's, a, it's a lot of work on my own. That's for sure. But uh I love it. There's nothing better. You know what? On a cold, crisp night, 11 at night, super still uh, with a hose flooding the rink. I love it. I've been very lucky to to learn from you how important all of these things are to you. And I would like to acknowledge, um, A, your job. Um, you are such a committed mother. It's unbelievable to see. Um, I love that part of you. It's one of my favorite things that you've shared with me. Um, Thank and- you. Um, and your love for sport and not only for your success, but making sure everybody else succeeds is such an important part of your DNA. Um, as this uh, runs, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. It's officially uh, your you birthday. Thanks. <laughs> Last year was the big 50. I'm 51. I think it was better with 50 than 51. 51 sounds way older, but <laughs> that's all right. I'm okay with it. <laughs> Good luck in Beijing. And uh, hopefully you. we can reconnect and maybe get some storytelling about how it went afterwards. That would be wonderful for everybody. Perfect. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks so much. Katrina Lemaydon, uh, chef de mission for the Beijing Olympics for Canada. Merry Christmas. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Merry Christmas. This is the Shift Podcast. We got him on the phone now. Opie is here on the Shift, and Opie joins okay. us to get into conversation about the cannabis. Opie, you're in the middle of nowhere, kicking it in the mountains. What's That's happening, right. man? I just came out here for some skiing and uh, don't have the best internet connection, so I apologize for that. No problem. We're glad we got you, got it all sorted out. Now, Opie, one of the reasons you've been recommended to us uh, is through a sort of a circle of friends and your experience in communicating about this stuff. Um, we wanted to talk about cannabis. Specific, we, needed, we need to learn about this stuff. There's an awful lot that, that goes on about it. And for me, it's just not never been my thing, Opie. Like, it's, it's not an a, a experience I've ever been able to enjoy. So I don't bring a lot to the conversation, but I do have lots of questions. And through the holidays, people often try new things. And, um, you know, like you hear stories about people who, you know, have a brownie on Christmas Day with the family and wake up, you know, on Boxing Day. So um, how do we get into this conversation, Opie, and what are we misunderstanding here as Canadians when we start the conversation of cannabis? It'll help us understand what you're all about. Absolutely. That's a really great question. And the way that I like to start off this conversation, because I've definitely had this conversation before, is that I like to start off by saying that cannabis is the sum of all of its small parts and different types of cannabis have different small parts which make up the sum and with that sum you get different outcomes so for example you have certain strains or or, uh, cultivars of cannabis uh, that have different uh, 
cannabinoids and combinations of cannabinoids with something called terpenes, which are essential oils. And those combinations can result in different uh, outcomes of how the user experiences it, whether it's uh, extremely psychoactive or non-psychoactive. So it's important to know uh, what you're getting in terms of the, the, the ratios of the, uh, the cannabinoids in them. So, for example, uh, if you have a strain that is very high in something called CBD, which is a cannabinoid, and it has comb- very low THC, that's going to be that's not going to get you high, but it'll have other positive effects, uh, such as it could help you get to sleep or it could be very anti-inflammatory. And the the part that makes it sedative or not sedative isn't actually the THC or the CBD. What's important about that is it's something called terpenes, which are essentially just essential oils that uh, synergize with the cannabinoids and either elevate you or sedate you. So that's a very important um, uh, way to approach this topic is is understanding that not all cannabis is the same and uh, realizing that there are small components of it that make it react with your body differently. Well, it's so interesting when you say that. So, you know, uh, you know, uh, consuming cannabis in some fashion so you can either have an outcome or not have an outcome that still has an outcome. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So what I like to how I like to explain uh, the the CBD side of it is that it uh, it's it's kind of like a good chamomile tea. It's it's going to help you relax, but you won't feel the psychoactive effects of it. Whereas you know you eat a THC edible, not only is it going to be super psychoactive because of the THC. Another caveat about eating edibles is that uh, your liver actually changes that THC into a more psychoactive component than you would uh, when you'd be inhaling it. So you're actually consuming a more um, psychoactive version of THC when you eat it, just because of the way that your liver metabolizes it. Right. Well, and I'd imagine if you burn it, like in a uh, marijuana cigarette style, um, that would, I mean, the whole chemical compound would change in how you consume it. That would have a different impact than if you put it into a brownie, wouldn't it? Exactly, and the big part about that is uh, something called THC, and THC comes in several different forms. Uh, the the form that's released when you smoke it is something called THC Delta 9, and that is psychoactive, but when you take that THC Delta 9 and you eat it and it goes through your liver, your liver will actually change it into another compound called uh, THC Delta 11, and that is significantly more psychoactive than the than the in the the form that you would inhale it, the Delta Nine. So many places we can go here, uh, OP, because of your like your your background and all of these things. So let's uh, because I do have questions about you know how and why and all that stuff. But let's get into the misunderstandings first. Let's open this up for everybody who has no idea. My dad, for example, he has started with the CBD edibles to help with the inf- uh, inflammation and those kinds of things, pain and comfort and, and all that stuff. Right. Um, I, we try to talk him into the THC, but we haven't been able to talk him into it. Um, but the, um, so that is one thing. There's an awful lot that we get hesitant about when we talk about cannabis in general. There are many misunderstandings because so many people think cannabis, oh, that's weed. Oh, mm-hmm. that's a pothead and all those mm-hmm. things when it's, I mean, sure, there are those sort of party people, if you will, but that's not what this really is fundamentally about. Absolutely not. And I, I think what people assume cannabis, the, the weed or the, the, the stereotypical weed, what it is, is is actually the form that is really high in THC and is really high in terpenes that make that THC more bioavailable. But not all cannabis has those types of chemical compounds on it. So you could you could basically eliminate the THC and have other terpenes that don't psychoactively affect you. And you would have something more similar to, again, like I would say a chamomile tea, something that's going to relax you, but not psychoactively, um, you know, make you uh, high essentially. Hmm. Okay. What do we misunderstand? What about politics? What do we misunderstand in all this, buddy? Uh, so the big thing with politics and policy right now is the conversation that you, you and I are having right now. We can't actually have that conversation when we're 
uh, talking about recreational cannabis, just because of the way the regulation set up is that uh, recre- in the recreational market, you're actually not allowed to talk about uh, the medicinal um, benefits of cannabis. So you have to talk about it in a very general term. So when you go to a cannabis store, they're actually not allowed legally to educate you on on the medical marijuana side. However, if you do have a prescription and you are getting medical marijuana uh, from a, a doctor, they have that ability to talk to you about the more uh, scientific and medical benefits. So that's a kind of a... Uh, uh, a handicap or a, a, a disadvantage that the private sector has right now is uh, they're actually not allowed to talk in depth uh, uh, about uh, the benefits and the, the science behind the plant, uh, which is a little bit unfortunate. And uh, if you look at uh, what's happening in the states, uh, since it's not federally regulated, uh, a lot of the individual states have uh, decreased regulation in that term, so they are allowed to make bold health claims in the private sector about their products, but you'll never see that happening in Canada uh, in the current regulatory framework. It must be such a crossroads, right? Because I imagine that, um, you know, you got to let the, the medical folks do the medical things, but at the same time, when this has been widely known to have medical contributions but not recognized in the same way that it probably should have been, um, it's yeah, kind of a gimme gotcha, hey? It, it, it is kind of a, a double-edged sword, but uh, the big part of that is the reason why Health Canada and the Canadian regulatory framework hasn't allowed those claims is um, the, a lot of the research that's happened uh, hasn't been done on human trials yet, so they can't make the bold claim. So what Health Canada has done, it's taken a risk-adverse approach, and it's taken a public health approach to uh, re- legalization, where they're saying that we're legalizing it to basically as a harm reduction approach to, um, you know, allow better access of it. But we're not going to allow companies to make those bold claims until we have those human trials. And we can for sure say uh, that, you know, that this does X does uh, X plus Y equals Z. Uh, but right now they just don't have access to that type of research. But what's happening now, as it's been legalized, um, uh, researchers have better access to that and have started uh, human clinical trials and now we're getting data back that we can uh, make certain claims but that's all just happened in the last few years uh, so as more countries start federally legalizing it there'll be better access to science and data so with that we can start making these claims with more um, uh, basically more accuracy and legally that's that's the big thing that um, Health Canada is wrestling with right now is that we have some research on it. It's pretty good research, but it's not at the level of clinical and human trials. Now, you with your uh, cannabis policy experience is through the roof, and we can talk about politics, I'm sure, all day. Um, but it does sort of avoid the fun stuff that, you know, through the course of the holidays, I would like to imagine that people can be open-hearted to a point where if they want to try it or they've been tempted to try it or whatever, they could drop the stigma and go and do it. Is there, is it, maybe this is too simple, but we can, keep in mind, I'm not only, I'm not a like full-on noob, like I'm full-on rookie, right? Like it's been since college, like twice. <laughs> so it's, it's been a long time, Opie. Um, yeah. how in the world does anybody get started here? Like start asking questions, like ask your, Family members, hey, by the way, do you like? What do you do? I have no idea. Uh, yeah, so I mean, if you want like a, a health a harm reduction approach and, and basically want to, you know, um, be a risk adverse approach, you definitely want to consult. Uh, there was a, um, a publication, uh, a harm reduction publication put out by the uh, Associations of Doctors of Canada, and what they put were, were out just some um, some best practices. Uh, of, of of using cannabis in a safe way, and a lot of those practices uh, use methods of of consumption that are a lot uh, safer on your body and that avoid combustion. So a lot of the har- the harmful effects of using cannabis are from combustion would come from a joint, and the way to mitigate those harms would be using it uh, again using some form orally or through a vaporization method or topically. So that you're not getting that um, that smoke, which basically brings particulate matter into your into your lungs, 
And not only that, uh, when you're when you're smoking a joint, uh, it also it's burning at a very high temperature, and that's really harsh on your on your um, on your respiratory system. Just the heat of of that smoke coming in. So there's definitely ways to to mitigate uh, the harms, and um, and combustion definitely is one of the most uh, harmful ways of consuming cannabis. What about dab pens and stuff like that? You hear the young folks sort of with, uh, you know, the vapes and the dab pens and all those things. Seems sure. to be a growing trend with the younger generation. Is it legit? Uh, I mean, the research is still pretty uh, new on that. We only have a few, about, you know, about five years of, of decent research on that. But what what it does show is that um, it does, the vape the vaporization is at a lower temperature than what you would consume uh, uh, taking ca- cannabis uh, through smoking it. And because of that, we can make certain claims for sure is that it's going to be a lot less um, harmful on your on your respiratory system. And if you're getting it from a legal source, such as a retail store, it's going to make sure that there's no, uh, you know, harmful additives in that solution uh, and that's where a lot of the problems with vape pens came was that uh, when when there was a, a very active black market um, producers from the black market would put additives that weren't so safe um, to inhale uh, but with the research that we do have on you know uh, well uh, lab controlled um, you know batch tested uh, distillate, which is what you would find in these uh, vape cannabis vape cartridges, uh, it's actually a lot safer than than actually smoking it. But then again, you just got to make sure that you're getting it from a a, a a a legitimate source and not from the black market. Is there a um, is there a best way? I mean, is it you know is gummy bear or the classic the classic brownie? I mean, like, is there a best way that would maximize your experience? Because I mean, I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to diminish the experience of it. So to maximize the experience of it, and also, I guess you know, keep it as I mean, smoking is still smoking. So I I sort of throw that into the the realm of you know probably not good for you just because of the smoke. But is there is there a best way that you found through all of your research that truly provides the truest of the experience because it seems like every time you filter it right whether it's you know in a bong going through water on a vaporizer you know it's getting it is getting heated again and all those things is there is there a best way yeah absolutely so those methods would be harm reduction methods and and again the top ones it would be vaporization uh, oral uh, so those would be the edibles uh, sublingual which would be the tinctures that you would drop in your mouth and also uh, topical uh, solutions, which you could get in lotions or, or other types of um, uh, basically, you know, lip balms, whatever. Uh, those would not have the same type of um, exposure to different, uh, uh, not only particulate matter, but what happens with combustion is you also get a lot of tar and, um, and uh, other carcinogenics that are completely avoided by these other methods. And for a newbie, who, who's never really tried cannabis, what I would recommend in terms of a, a risk-adverse way of approaching it is uh, is eating it uh, through edibles, but having virtually no THC and having a lot of CBD in it so that you get a, you get that, um, that relaxation um, outcome out of it, but without the psychoactive effects. And then slowly over time, increase the THC amount and basically titrate. So, you know, start off with something that has 10 milligrams of CBD and zero zero milligrams of uh, THC in the edible and then see how that feels. And the next time around, uh, increase it to maybe, you know, 10 uh, 10 milligrams of CBD and maybe two milligrams of THC. And if that feels good, then eventually uh, increase the THC slowly. But that's another recommendation that this group of doctors uh, uh, stated was uh, basically start low and go slow, meaning that, you know, start low, uh, low with the THC, and as you get more comfortable with it, then start to increase it. So basically uh, titrating it in, in a fashion. So when we look at different kinds of marijuana um, mm-hmm. that go in this, um, now this is where I need you to correct me, um, if my language is law is wrong, you're not going to offend me here at all, please, because uh, I'd like to learn. But if you're if you're like, you, if you go buy a gummy bear, right? right? And like, can you do you go buy like a purple Kush gummy bear like you used to be able to buy Kush 
you know, bags to smoke? Like, yeah, you can. Uh, certain companies will, not all companies, sometimes they'll just give you a general um, gummy that's, you know, that says this much CBD, this much THC, but sometimes you can get edibles that are derived from a particular strain, whether that be, um, you know, um, OG Kush or, or uh, uh, Lemon Skunk or what have you. But the important part about that is, each strain has not only its uh, specific uh, cannabinoid ratios, but it also has different ratios of terpene. So what they're saying is that uh, this this lemon kush edible has this very particular ratio that's only found in this one strain of of terpenes relative to cannabinoids. So that's the important delineation there is that you're you're basically buying a a certain profile when you when you buy a certain strain of these of these chemicals. So you um you also have a minor in economics and all this stuff too. So I'm That's curious right. to you when when you look at the market in general, uh, some of the numbers that were coming out, um, which I'm not quite sure how they understand how much weed yeah. is sold in Canada when they yeah. say. You know, um, you know, the, the guys who are buying it in a back alley, like, you know, um, when people just do it the old school way, I'm not quite sure how they know that number because it's not like they're filing taxes. You know what I'm saying? But, um, but when you look at the cannabis industry in general now with legalization, the economics of all of it, is it headed in the right direction? Uh, it is. Uh, it definitely was inflated there right, right before I would say at yeah. the end of 2018, there was a lot of, uh, well, the stock prices really, really plummeted in a lot of cases, right? Yeah, and a lot of the time there was a lot of over-assumption and a lot of the investors, um, they were basically looking at their, how they were framing it was that whatever they could produce, they would be able to sell. And uh, in the early stages when I was working, consulting with some of the uh, some private investors, what I told them was instead of using these really inflated industry numbers, what they needed to do was look at existing jurisdictions that had legalized uh, recreational cannabis for a few years and see what um, what kind of numbers they're producing and use those numbers to model uh, basically forecasts for us. And what, what they should have done and what I advise a lot of people to do was look at um, how the cannabis market progressed in Washington and Colorado because those were states that legalized recreational cannabis in 2012, 2011. So by the time Canada had started uh, its legalization process, we had almost five to 10 years of data on how those markets blossomed. So you could, what they should have done is taken those figures and applied them to the Canadian population in the Canadian market, and then basically forecasted their numbers off of that, which would have been a little bit more rational in terms of how they forecasted. But a lot of the times they weren't using those numbers and they were basically just saying, we're going to be able to sell what we produce. And that was very, um, in terms of the numbers that they were claiming were very inflated. So it wasn't very rational of them to do that. Opie, I would like you to come back in the new year and join us. I think I would like to open this conversation up for the shift heads at nighttime here for any questions they might have. Um, and just to, you know, general cannabis questions, whether it is, you know, about lotions, um, to help or relax with the CBD end of it or to, uh, enjoy the THC end of it and those parts as well. Because the one thing I do know is in most provinces across the country, the amount of training you need to work in a cannabis store is a lot different than you get to work in a liquor store. And so it's, it seems like it's, it's headed in a more positive direction. So the, the only help you really get when you go, unless you go to a craft brewery or you right. get a sommelier who works in a wine store to get expert assistance, you, you, you don't get any help when you go get a liquor, but yet you That's do right. get help when you go into the cannabis stores. Is that fair? Uh, I would say so, especially in an immature industry where consumers are just beginning to learn about it and there's a lot of imperfect knowledge out there. I think it is important to have that uh, connection with the consumer and, and educate as much as you are, are able to, even though that education aspect is still, in terms of regulations, restricted. Uh, I think it's an important aspect of, of helping the, uh, the consumers mature and also the industry mature because right now uh, in terms of knowledge uh, the the industry is definitely in in its infancy stages and the more um, knowledge that the consumer has the more um, the better choices that they can make in terms of the products that they buy 
All right, we're going back to school with Opie Sidhu, Cannabis 101. That's what we're going to do. Um, lots of people enjoy uh, the benefits of cannabis across this country. Most people haven't, and um, so let's let's do Cannabis 101. Opie Sidhu, Cannabis Policy and uh, just Consultant and all-around expert to help us understand. I mean, you have to understand this is a master's in policy, minor in economics policy. Like you're, you're like a spreadsheet nerd guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, that's how I got into is just really getting into the data of it and, uh, and kind of just doing cost benefit analysis. And you definitely see that it's definitely a huge benefit to society. And right now when we're in a situation where we're running out of resources and we're facing a lot of medical issues, uh, cannabis and in, in its different forms, whether it's hemp, uh, is, is definitely becoming a viable green solution to a lot of our, our problems that we're having today. Uh, Opie Sidhu, uh, thank you very much for being here. Thank I appreciate you. it, buddy. Um, enjoy those mountains. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you. And I look forward to thank chatting you. in the new year. Merry Christmas. Take care. Take care, Shane. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.